to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. If there is one restaurant on this planet that embodies purity of intent and an obsessive eye for detail, it is Hawksmoor. Whether you're in London, Manchester, Edinburgh or New York, which will or has opened, depending on exactly when you listen to this episode, you know you'll be given exceptional food, but with none of the stuffiness that used to come with such wonderful dining. As regular listeners will know, I have the privilege of interviewing dozens of hospitality legends. And without fail, whenever the Hawksmoor name crops up, people nod their hat to their awesome, well-deserved reputation and exceptionally consistent execution. So I was very, very excited to finally get to sit down and hear their story directly from the horse, or should I say cow. Hawksmoor's founders, Will Beckett and Hugh Gott, have stuck to their original vision, doing simple things really, really well and delivering them in beautifully relaxed settings which feel like they've been there forever. But doing simple things brilliantly time and time again takes a lot of time and effort. My conversation with Will gives you an insight into the incredible amount of thought that goes into every tiny detail, from sourcing ingredients from the best ethical producers to calibrating the level of smoky grit on the grills used to cook the famous Hawksmoor steaks, to even rummaging through second-hand shops to find the right architectural features for each of their venues. Hawksmoor is an inspiring example of how you can build your business with integrity on both sides of the Atlantic. And if you're wondering why Hawksmoor dares to bring its offering to the USA, home to the steak restaurant, start listening now to find out why. Will Beckett, Hawksmoor, thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast. Hugely appreciate it. Can you just explain to listeners where on planet Earth are we, please, Will? Uh, we are in, uh, we're in our office in Shoreditch, which is, I mean, it's literally a stone's throw from the first Hawksmoor that we opened. Uh, we've just, we've just moved here. So we're really, really excited about kind of being back where it all started. Nice. You're tucked down a little back street. I did manage to miss it on the first walk past and ended up, I think the reception around the corner in Jack's place uh, must get people coming in all the time all the saying, time. where's Hawksmoor? Because he, he literally went into it. It's very friendly, full of banter and said, yeah, it's just around the corner and directly yeah, it's definitely so You should probably buy him a coffee occasionally. It's <laughs> definitely not like the most glamorous of locations or offices. We had someone from our board come in on the first month or something that we've moved in. And he said, I think this must be the only company that I've seen where as you kind of get bigger, you actually move into a worse office. Um, But anyway. I I found it quite refreshing having sat in various cupboards of small kind of startup places to know that even when you've got a decent chunk of funding behind you in successful restaurants, you still don't spend all of your money back of house. Front of house is still where the money is. No one would walk in here and accuse us of spending all our money on fancy offices. No, No. I don't think so. It's very true. So um, you've got a a really annoyingly good uh, reputation. I've interviewed loads of people. Your name comes up all the time and everybody loves you. Um, So I'm I'm hoping that you'll destroy that uh, illusion by the end of this. (laughs) There's no no doubt that that will be gone. Actually, he's an arsehole. Um, But Hawksmoor and you, uh, 
yeah, all, all, almost faultless. I'm sure it's not like that behind the scenes. But for people who don't know Horsemore, in the hospitality industry, I think everybody knows you. You have got this incredible reputation. Um, but for people listening who don't know, what, what is that ethos around your restaurants and around food? What does, what does Horsemore stand for? Yeah, it's funny. In a way, I, I, I think of it as blindingly obvious or simple, really. I mean, we... we we are just steak restaurants. There's nothing, there's nothing wildly clever about what it is that we do. Um, we are, from kind of a restaurant point of view, we, I think we, we, we started on just trying to do really, really simple things well, right? So in my mind, if you're gonna run a steak restaurant, you probably wanna spend quite a lot of time thinking about beef, right? what creates the best beef, how do animals live, what's the best way of farming, uh, what's the best way of aging, what should you cook them on, how do you, you know, whatever, all of that kind of stuff. And what started as just let's do basics, well, let's make sure we're really, really good at steak and chips, uh, has kind of, has developed, I think, in terms of, how much attention we put into doing a range of things that strike us as just the basics of being a steak restaurant, but we try and do them as well as possible. Um, nice rooms, nice vegetarian food. You know, you should have, uh, in our mind, all of that should exist well. So we put a lot of effort into just thinking about how to do simple stuff well, I think, and without ever really feeling that we do anything that is clever. Um, and I think that that has, that has coincided with, we tried to build a restaurant that probably is in line with our personalities, which is we like high standards. We like trying to do things really well and being good at what we do, but we are some of the most casual people, two of the most casual people that I know really, um, both in terms of the way we dress and the way we like to work and just, being ourselves at work and not kind of and not having kind of a professional personality and actually we've we've succeeded somehow in building a company with uh, there's about 700 people in it now where almost everyone is into those two things of kind of like really just being yourself at work and being casual but having high standards and thinking really really carefully about simple stuff but in terms of what we do you know, and, and people say people do say nice things about us. I mean, we we sell steak and chips, and we employ a lot of people, and we just try to make sure that they have good jobs. There is nothing revolutionary about that. There's almost nothing interesting about it. But <laughs> but we spend an unbelievable amount of time thinking about those two things. Yeah. It's, it's such a uh, simple concept, and you, and you explain it so casually. Uh, I mean, it has to be that finesse, I suppose, that magic sauce that... Yeah, your attention to, to lots and lots of minute details that make it bigger than just being steak and chips, I guess. Uh, I suppose particularly, you know, it wasn't always this way, was it? But now even, even your buildings are beautiful. You have a reputation for finding these incredible kind of architectural buildings. Is that, is that part of it? It's not just about steak, presumably. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, if you, if you explain the concept of a steak restaurant to someone, I think it would take, maybe not seconds, but minutes before they've grasped the basics and kind of said, well, you know, if you're gonna do a steak restaurant and steak by its very nature, 
is expensive-ish uh, and therefore is going to require a certain kind of customer who can afford that. You're probably going to want to put them in lovely buildings and you're going to want those buildings to be decorated thoughtfully. Uh, again, it's not, it's not rocket science. And for us, it just feels so normal that we would try and go into a, a beautiful heritage building and try and build a restaurant that feels like it's always been there, that feels like it has either stood or, or will stand the test of time and not look like, like that is so 2014. Um, again, it just, it just feels like quite a simple thing to us. And Hugh, and I, I'm just pausing because I was going to say my business partner, which seems daft in a way because he's also been my best mate since I was 11 years old. But he is... He's quite, he's quite an obsessive person. He's obsessed with food and design. He just loves those things. It just, it, it just makes him happy. We're building this restaurant in New York at the moment. We've almost finished building this restaurant in New York in an unbelievably beautiful building. And I can't tell you how happy it makes him just kind of trying to work with this building that has been kind of closed off to the general public for decades and just kind of restoring it to its former glory. I, I think he enjoys that bit of it probably even more than the just having a restaurant that works well. Mm. I think it's so exciting when you walk into a space and, and I'm guessing you're the same. So you, you can see it, you walk in, because you, you've seen a lot of buildings. New York was originally going to be the yeah. uh, World Trade Center, was it? Yeah. Or some sort of big, more sort of modern building. But that idea of, of moving into uh, more historic kind of buildings, is that something that's, that's evolved? I'm guessing that on day one of the first Hawksmoor, you didn't say, right, we're only ever going to go into these buildings. Yeah, I mean, you could walk past the thing. You might even have, have cycled past it on your, way, on your way here. That is not a heritage building. Uh, it's not beautiful. Um, it is... It's a drab building on what, when we bought it, was called, what an estate agent called a tertiary location. Uh, and, you know, we've, it, it, the soul of Hawksmoor is there and we have refurbed it a couple of times, but the, the building is grim. And that's, that, that idea of using beautiful buildings has kind of developed as those buildings have become accessible to us, either because landlords want Hawksmoor in their building now or because we can afford it, uh, which was not the case in 2006 when we first started. What, um, what attracted you to that one initially in 2006? Uh, affordability. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, to, if I think about 2006, we, we, Hawksmoor was our fourth restaurant and the other three, which still existed in 2006, were and certainly ended up being various shades of failure. We, we had no money, but we had enthusiasm and naivety uh, and that we just found this building that was available. And there is definitely a version of the Hawksmoor story, the, ori you know, the origins story, uh, which, which, is, which is true and real about, you know, when we ate, you know, we'd, we'd eat steak as a sort of special occasion treat in Hugh's house uh, and like a memory of how good British beef was and how much effort we put into that and excitement about, you know, kind of traveling the world and we'd seen these things at these amazing steak restaurants and all of that is true. But there's another version which is also true, which is we just, we just found a Turkish grill restaurant 
on a fairly shitty street and it had a rabatta grill on it. Uh, not rabatta, you know, with a Turkish kind of grill with bars. And, uh, and we didn't have any money. So we just built the restaurant really around the kitchen equipment that existed in this Turkish grill restaurant. Yeah, much more affordable way of building restaurants, isn't it? If you take an existing one and just, <coughs> yeah. uh, and just tweak it. It's what? funny, that grill, by the way. Uh, is it still there? Well, it's still there. Not only is it still there, when we opened our second restaurant four years later, there was this kind of question of like, okay, wh what's the special sauce that, you know, that kind of makes Hawksmoor work? And for Hugh, that was, you know, what's the special sauce that makes a steak work? And we've obviously got, you know, all of the farming and all of that kind of stuff, the field to fork bit. But in there somewhere is, oh, oh my God, what if, it's the, what if it's about the grill? Like it's built a certain way. It's kind of, uh, it's almost pyramid shaped. So the kind of smoke stays in, it's kind of get... So Hugh had the, the grill built as an exact replica of the Turkish grill that we inherited. And the bars of the grill, he bought six months early and put underneath the bars of the grill in Spitalfields in case like the seasoning of the bars and the kind of, you know, the history of it being all kind of charcoal-y was part of the special sauce. So we, by the time we opened our new restaurant in Covent Garden in 2010, the grill was basically exactly the same down to like the level of smoky grit on the bars. Wow, that's pretty OCD, that level of yeah, detail, I think that's, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Hugh is quite detail obsessed. <laughs> has, has he managed to let that go yet, or is that continuing? Uh, not the OCD, the, not that, that specific grill. I was going to say, not that exact. <laughs> I mean, we still, we, we've, we've introduced a Josper and the grills have got bigger. And I think we've kind of like got a bit more relaxed about, oh no, it's mostly, it's mostly about the farmers and the chefs and okay. not about the it's bars of metal. The grill. But I mean, that example of an unbelievable attention to detail about something and really lasering in on it is, is Hugh's entire professional life. He, he loves that kind of stuff. Um, and sometimes the results of that are unbelievable. And sometimes they are wildly frustrating. It's such a recurring theme. And it's why I love going and interviewing people in hospitality is that fundamentally there's normally somebody who's got obsessed with a tiny, tiny little detail yeah. in it somewhere, and that doesn't matter. Um, I did uh, the Will, um, William Curley, Chocolatier, I don't uh -huh. know if you know him, but obsessed yeah. by chocolate, you know, and, and I think it was something like nine years or 12 years for him to get his Master of Culinary Arts, just focused on, on one tiny little thing, and whether yeah. it's coffee or whether it's beer or whether it's chocolate, hospitality is full of people so who obsess. Hugh really admires Japan yeah. as, a, as a culture and as a food culture. And that thing actually is what the thing you're describing is what he admires, which mm. is the Japanese ability to take a thing and dedicate an unbelievable amount of time to making that thing better. So he would say like baby aubergines, for example, you know, there's probably decades of work into Japan, in Japan put into the answer to the question, what would be the best baby aubergine? There's that kind of classic film, isn't it? Uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, where this 80-year-old man, who's now 90 and still running this restaurant, he's just given back his three Michelin stars, talks about how he has learned that if you massage the octopus for an extra hour, on top of the two hours that you've already massaged the octopus, that sushi is like 5% better at the end. And that's, that's a good lesson for when he was 80. To Hugh, that is 
that's just absolute gold dust. And to me, it's just, oh my, oh my God, what are you doing? What, yeah, what are you with, doing? With your life. Well, I share Hugh's uh, appreciation of it, at least. I just love the fact, you know, we're, we're, we're so uh, lucky, I suppose, as a human species, that some people have got the time to dedicate yeah. an obscene amount of time to their niche. <coughs> Incredible. Um, and we're very lucky probably that it's not us, because I also share that I probably couldn't massage a squid for three hours without going mental. I, I've never tried. So I think Hugh uh, could. Really? We, so we, do, we, we have this conversation about done and perfect. He even bought me a little picture once that said done is better than perfect, which is kind of my philosophy. Yeah. But it's not Hughes. Hughes really? is definitively perfect, perfect is better, is than, better done. than done. He, deadlines mean nothing. Nothing to him whatsoever. Yeah, and he said that to me many times. Even as I say the words, yes, I will get it done by that date, what I actually mean is, unless I think I could do it better, in which case the date means nothing to me and I'll just keep going better until I feel it's good enough. But he has no real sense of good enough. Uh, so anyway, it's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to work with. I imagine, yeah, is that ever, because business partnerships quite often go wrong, but uh, you know, does that ever you know, come to the point of frustration where you've tried to kill each other or uh, has it always been uh, an amicable journey? It, have we ever got to the point where we've tried to kill each other? For, for many, many, many years, we used to laugh that we'd only ever had one work argument. Uh, and one of us would say that they were right, but that the other one won the argument. And it was about, it was about the sign for the first bar that we opened just off Brick Lane in East London in 2003. And we hadn't had an argument for a decade. And we have had a couple more since then, but it is, it is rare. It's just, we are, we are extremely different. And that's always been great in terms of we work at really different things. Like I like, I like how do you run a business? And I like the people side of what we do. And Hugh likes food and design. And we almost never get involved in each other's spheres of influence, except to, for the most part, healthily say, I think, I think you need to get over yourself. That's, you're, that's a shit idea. Don't do that. Uh, which is really helpful. But yeah, definitely, it, it, clashes, almost, from it clashes yeah. from time to time. But almost like it was meant to be, because presumably <coughs> you didn't go into business together because you recognised those completely different personalities. I'm guessing in the early days, it was just, you know, jump, jump behind the bar, yeah. serve the customers. Yeah, no one had. the rest I mean, of I, it came later. I often think, you know, you hear... You hear people talk about like gap in the market and we had this crazy plan. I, I, I don't know if that's real for some people, but my experience and most people I know's experience is you just started and then you saw what happened and you kind of just rolled with the punches from there. That's, I think that's how most people do it. Is that how you? Yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think brand and, and business very rarely comes from sitting down and opening a book, does it? And going, right, what's the process of starting a business? What's the process of, of launching a brand? I think yeah. for most entrepreneurs I speak to, it comes from the heart, from the soul. They obsess about, you know, one ridiculous element. I was chatting to the Honest Burgers guys a few weeks ago, who, yeah. who the main thing that they obsessed about just was Tom's. Chips. Yeah, Tom and Phil. Yeah, yeah Tom's and, so obsessive. Yeah, hugely obsessive just on the chips and the fact that they would never compromise on, you know, like they've run out of chips rather them run down the road and get a frozen yeah, yeah, bag yeah, in those yeah. early days when they were doing you know event catering at a wedding or a friend's barbecue or something like that even then and you just think yeah that's where it comes from you've got to be obsessed by the details yeah and eventually it either works out or it doesn't but yeah but and actually they're another good example i think tom and phil and there's another guy dorian mm. they all they all kind of like 
I mean, if you and I are yin and yang, I don't know what it's like if you add a third yong uh, to it, but they're, they're just a nicely balanced group. And I'm sure that creates some friction in the background, but you can really see, yeah, the obsession, the drive and stuff. And, and yeah, that kind of evan- evangelical attitude to mm. purity and yeah. integrity comes, I, well, I get it from Tom anyways. Yeah, and the reason it's fascinating, I suppose, is because we're <coughs> in an industry with such a, a reputation for a high failure rate but you know, I think fairly low barriers to entry in those early days. You can open something on a budget. You can start with your street food concept. Yeah, I think their, first, their first restaurant cost them seven grand. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. So it, going back, though, just very briefly to the start, so the, the sort of three things you'd done before Hawksmoor, did it feel different? Because you'd done a, a Mexican restaurant, you'd done a pub. When you got to Hawksmoor, was this just a case again of you know, the evolving journey and you were just throwing out ideas and opportunities present themselves or did that one feel different? Was it taking the learning from the first few and going, right, let's implement this? No, that would be really good, wouldn't it? If I could say we'd learned a lot from failure and applied it to Hawksmoor. And that did happen, but I think it happened three years after we opened or something. I think really the truth of Hawksmoor is we were so overwhelmed by trying to run these three and then four different things that we had no choice but to let talented people get on with it. So we had an amazing general manager called Nick Strangeway, who's like this kind of cocktail legend, uh, and an amazing assistant general manager, Tim, who is now managing director of Hawksmoor 14 years later. Uh, and th- the truth is, and I think they would say it as well, we just weren't able to get in their way. And Nick was a very strong personality. So he, actually, he, he would say to us, get out, <laughs> get out of the restaurant. Don't think of any, don't come up with any more clever ideas. <laughs> just let me get on with it, it's working. And, and we learn a lot from him. Yeah. I'm laughing because I think my team appreciate that now in the same way. They're like, please go home and get out of the way. Yeah. I slow down service now. So we started that way. Yeah, okay, <laughs> good. Well, I, I evolved to it. What motivated you? So if you had three that were kind of iffy, and I'm guessing back then you're flying by the seat of your pants, well, why did you keep opening? What made you open the fourth instead of just going, you know what, this is really hard. I'm going to go and get another yeah. job. I mean, I think a variety of things. Um, we had learned, despite the hard, that this is this felt like the industry for us. We've both kind of grown up in food and drink families. Hughes family, you know, have a little cafe, and uh, my mum's a food journalist. Uh, she's a Guardian wine columnist. That's quite um, a handy start in life, isn't it? I'm, I was slightly yeah. envious when I read that. I was certainly like, wow, imagine growing up in that house. Certainly gives <laughs> you an appreciation for oh, this is good. This is not good. Yeah, but actually, it it hasn't been great for my wine knowledge, really. Anyway, I'll. I'll, I'll Another story, perhaps. Yeah. Another time, perhaps. Uh, so partly, we just, we liked it. And I think if you're happy, even if things are difficult, that's, that's good. Uh, partly, we were naive. Uh, you know, looking back on it now, it's an absolute car crash that someone who was an actual adult should have said to us, what the fuck are you doing? Just get out. And they would have been right to do so even in hindsight, probably they'd have been right to do so, given the failure rate. 
But I think also probably a fear, you just said, why didn't you just stop and get a job? I think both of us had learned that we were awful at having a job, didn't like working for other people, didn't feel happy. I used to think that I didn't like work. You had a pretty and, horrible job though, wasn't it? Cold calling or something? Like I had that? cold calling in sales. But I mean, I was a teacher I was, and okay. I enjoyed being a teacher. But I still thought work is bad. And I realise now that actually, I, I, mean, I think work is one of the things, one of the kind of things that underpins my whole life. I love working. I just hated having a job and doing something I didn't really believe in uh, or working for people who didn't think about like, what, what, what would make me happy? And that sounds self-obsessed, but in my mind, that's, that's what an employer or a manager should do. They should look at the people that they employ or manage and think, how am I going to get the best out of this person? And if the answer isn't in part, well, if they're happy at work, I'm likely to get the best out of them, then surely they've missed the point entirely, or at least this company is built on that thought. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And that's why I think why you've got a reputation as being uh, a normal human being in an industry that often is full of uh, you know, crazy people who want uh, trophy bars and trophy restaurants and stuff like that. But uh, I think that, that integrity and authenticity of, you know, we're all in it together fundamentally. I think hospitality is a good industry for that. You know, yeah. In service, in a restaurant, whether you're the manager, in the kitchen, the, the KP, the, you know, the, the cocktail barman, it's such a team pursuit, I think, isn't it? The, the right hospitality venues uh, really build on that. And, and that's probably why you're still here there's also something about you know feeling feeling easy you know i remember someone saying to me managing managing people is really really easy as long as good managers manage good people you take any of the take either half of that equation out and it's such a nightmare but i think just if everyone's happy and knows what they're doing it's not a wildly complicated business that we run it's complex right there's lots of different moving parts but it's not complicated Lots of people could do it. You don't need a lot of special training. Yeah. The it's, only complicated bit, I think, is, is, and it's like you say, it's not complicated, it's just the reality, is there are multiple points of human interaction and humans are uh, not robotic, aren't they? They don't do the same thing every time, which in yeah. many ways is a good thing, but on some days, you know, who knows if the uh, barman has got a, a hangover or a late night or problems yeah. at home. And, and, yeah, and it's like a theatre performance, I think, isn't it? Every service is kind of like, right, big smiley face on, out we go, we're going to perform. Uh, yeah, in reality, there's all sorts of things going on behind the scenes. I remember chatting to Gareth Banner from The Ned. Do you know mm-hmm. Gareth? And, and he had something like over a weekend, it was something like 350 points of contact between, you know, a customer who stayed for two nights and his team. And really his you know, job is to make sure that every single one of those points of contact is positive with people from multiple nationalities, with multiple things going on for their lives. Uh, and that's a challenge. But it's also awesome, isn't it? Because it's a human and not a, not a robot. Yeah. Something else, in fact, you just touched on something that I also really find interesting about I don't know whether it really is unique to our industry, but I've never, I've never been in another industry. Let's say, let's say it's about business, but you, you can go about the challenge of how do we do this in so many different ways. Think about it in so many different ways. It's never occurred to me ever to think, I wonder how many points of contact there are. <laughs> Hugh might have thought about it. Between, well, Hugh would have thought about one okay. and then thought about it for the next three years of his life. But it's never occurred to me to think, I wonder how many points of contact there are and how that might work in different ways. It's just, it's just not how my mind works yeah. at all. But it's a, it's a completely legitimate, probably great way to do it. And different minds and different kinds of people, ideally, 
kind of cluster together to do it their way. Hawksmoor, I think, is full of people who think about things in a certain way. Uh, and, you know, I meet people regularly and think, you're clearly great at what you do. You couldn't work in Hawksmoor in a million years. And equally, I see people at Hawksmoor, I think, oh, God, you are close to being irreplaceable for us. And yet, I'm not sure that you would last five minutes in a different hospitality job doing the same thing because you're just right for this company mm. now and the way we think about things. Yeah, I think that's why hospitality is such a beautiful industry is you can get the, you know, the quirky eccentrics. We've got more people with, with musical instruments and crayons than we've got with kind of any kind of academia background in our company. And, and that can be an incredibly yeah, inspiring place, but it's very different, you know, I'm sure, in a sort of fine dining Michelin-starred restaurant than it is in a Hawksmoor on a, on a seafront restaurant. Yeah. Um, going back to the points of contact thing, I think that becomes more troubling and more relevant when, when it's a hotel and people stay for longer. I sure. love in the restaurant when I've only got to manage expectations for two or three hours. But I've, well, not obsessed necessarily, but certainly thought that, you know, when people come and stay in a hotel, you, you probably have a better night's kip in your own house than you're going to have in a hotel. But our, our objective is to try and make, you know, cleaning your teeth better in, in our hotel than it is in your house, whether that's the decadence of the bathroom and the mirror and the lighting and all that kind of stuff. But it's quite a hard thing that over two or three days, I always figure the longer people stay, the more nervous I get because I'm like, I can definitely exceed your expectations for the first 24 hours, probably the first 48, but after a week, you're probably going to wish that you'd gone home and I don't want to get the blame for that. Yeah, I don't know. And I'm, I'm, thinking, aloud, I'm thinking aloud a little bit, but I've always been more interested in principles than rules, yeah. right? So... Gareth at the Ned. Yeah. I don't know if this is right, but let's just say he's identified 350 uh, touch points. Po a, a logical follow-up from that might be, right, let's break them down. Let's put all of those on paper. Let's work out what good looks like for each of those 350 and let's train people on each of those 350 things so that everyone knows in this scenario, this is what you do. And if you can do that, it sounds like That's a really terrifying. sounds like a great company to me. <laughs> yeah. I think there are companies that run. I th I've got a feeling that Pret runs like that. Here's a range of situations. Here's how you deal with that situation. Everyone knows Pret's training is amazing. My way of doing it would be: I'd want to get everyone in the hotel together and say, "Your job. I don't care whether you are the person that puts the toothpaste back in the bathroom, or you're the concierge, or you're." a waiter, your job is to make people who will come here happy. That's it. Go away and work out how do you do that with what you do. Just understand the principle of what we're trying to achieve here and work it out in your own way, autonomously. And if you can, you'll be very, very happy here and we'll look after you. And if you can't, it's no problem. You just need to go and work somewhere else and we'll find someone else who likes working in that way. Yeah. I'd want to do it on principles, but I think a lot of people would like to do it on rules. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. I think you teach people the ethos of what you stand for, which is fundamentally, <coughs> like you say, it's very simple, isn't it? It's, it's kind of like, you know, blow the customer away, make them really happy. That's yeah. all you've got to do, and then empower them to do it. I always remember, and it's hard to on a podcast to draw, but the kind of traditional triangle of a hierarchy in a business with boss at the top and then, you know, down the hierarchy to lots of people at the bottom. And, and very early on got taught, you know, you need to flip that so it's the other way up so that your yeah. team are at the top. You know, the boss is ultimately the bottom. And all the boss's job really is to do is to say to the next layer up is like, what do you need from me yeah. to help you do your job? So I'm not going to tell you how we to We use it. that in Hawksmoor. We, we, I mean, we have five values. We call that one the support value. My job is to support people beneath me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or we don't use the word beneath, but again, like that kind of inverted pyramid. I, I think I came across it 
from Danny Meyer. Right. Yeah, I love that. He, yeah. He's got a whole chapter. Right on that exact thing. Yeah, maybe I did as well. I do yeah. remember reading his book, but it was probably 10 years ago, so I need to go yeah, back yeah, and yeah. re-listen to it. We've all ripped off loads from Danny Yeah, I did been, the 51 percenters really over the years, and yep. uh, yeah, he's, uh, yeah. I need to get him on the podcast, actually. I know you've, um, you went over to New York and spent some time with him. Yeah, that, that was, I think I, I say something, I think I've had four moments in my career where you, where I've sort of stopped and thought, I think, I think me and my daft mate from school might have done something pretty cool here. And that was definitely one of them. So in 2014, we went to New York and we got shown around the flagship restaurant of the World Trade Center. And the landlord was saying, we thought quite carefully about it. We would like you to be the flagship restaurant of the World Trade Center. And then on the other day, we wrote to Danny and said, you know, we're kind of in town. We'd love to come and see you. We had breakfast with Danny. We went and saw his number two guy and the head of culture. And, you know, they're telling us some stuff. And we said, have you ever thought about X, Y, Z? Oh, someone, someone wrote on the wall, they have a little, you know, whiteboard wall. Oh, here's a nice cool idea from the guys at Hawksmoor that maybe we could do that better. And I was like, oh my wow. God. You know, I remember coming, I remember just reading the book and being sort of like a, you know, weird Danny, Danny Meyer fan. And now here I am having breakfast with the guy and he's talking to me like I might in some daft way be the kind of person that Danny Meyer has breakfast with. And, and they're listening to ideas that we, that's insane. And I remember thinking then, this is, it's amazing. Yes, I said to Miranda when we started doing this uh, podcast, maybe not when we started, but maybe when we were six months in, I was like, Danny Meyer, when you get Danny Meyer to say yes and, and we sit down and have a chat, then we know that we've, uh, we've achieved because, yeah, he's, uh, his reputation is phenomenal, I think, isn't he? What yeah. he's put together. Good. Is yeah. he a good guy when you met him? He's such, a, he's such a nice guy. He's such a nice guy. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that principle, that principle of you can do, you can, you can do restaurants, but if you're going to do them, why not just do them with real integrity? Just be decent about the whole thing, you know, about how you source, about how you treat people, about how much money is a reasonable amount to all of that. Just be decent because isn't that what we're all here for in the first place? I mean, I don't know because I'm not, I'm not really old enough. I'm not old enough to have like a pre-Danny Meyer restaurant paradigm in my head. But to me, a lot of that came from him. And there was a lot of noise that was a different way of working, just like, you know, money and covers and drive this and drive that and, you know, work out the margin and what's, what's the, I don't know, how can you do it so that you kind of uh, fuck people over a little bit, customers? I think a lot of that came from him. Yeah. And that, I, for me, that's been a slightly depressing kind of, you know, the reason I started this podcast is I became concerned about the, the, the sort of the big investment from the venture capitalists into these kind of formulaic rollout of huge 200, 300 kind of unit chains across the country. And that they were taking something that for me is, is hospitality and Danny's perspective, you know, view of hospitality about, you know, people and how we make people feel and all that kind of stuff. That's what I think hospitality is. And I got a bit depressed by the, uh, the fact that people were turning it into a P&L and just running it by a, a faceless board of directors in London who, who, who probably don't actually believe it's hospitality. They believe it's making money. And, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that per se but it, it, it kind of irritated me that I think hospitality yeah, I should be so much more than that. I mean, I, I completely agree with, with the premise of we are in this business first and foremost 
to just try and do something really great and special. Look after people, make them feel happy, whether that's your customers or your staff, and just do something you feel really proud to look back on and say, I was part of that. That is number one thing. Uh, and if you put money as a higher priority than that, you have fundamentally missed the point and you're in the wrong industry. I, th I think my slight pause for disagreement would be the scale thing or the private equity thing. I think like anything, there's just good and bad. That There is no reason, in Danny's book, we're just gonna make this a Danny fan club <laughs> thing. In Danny's book, he's got this little phrase of like, whoever wrote the rule that, so he might phrase that as, whoever wrote the rule that big has to stop being integrity. There's no, there's no reason I can see, I mean it is, by the way, bigger is difficult than smaller, yep. I think, but, why should you lose integrity if, as you get bigger? There's, there's no obvious reason. There are pitfalls, absolutely. But just know what they are and, and make that kind of commitment and constantly be trying to work it out. And I think, I mean, we've talked about Honest Burgers, for example. I think you mentioned Deshume during this podcast. There are now quite a number of companies who are trying to think about something that we talk about a lot, which is integrity at scale. How do you do integrity, but, but make it bigger? Um, and I don't know, you're right. Obviously a lot of chains have lost the integrity as they've scaled, but I don't think that necessarily is the same as saying scale means loss of integrity. Mm. Um, I, I feel like that should be challenged because I think, I think that the, that just accepting that that is so doesn't encourage those companies to do better yeah. and doesn't encourage people to insensibly invest in smaller companies that are aspirational of doing integrity at scale. I mean, I, I definitely have heard that in the early days, a version of, if you're gonna to wanna to make this bigger, you're gonna to have to make it worse. Less good or less integrity is the only way to do bigger. Why? That doesn't make sense to me, but if that's an accepted view, that is what will happen. Does that make sense? 100%. You've been very careful, I think, in choosing an investment partner that I'm guessing uh, shares a longer-term perspective and the fact that you've stayed in control. But does it happen sometimes, do you think, where uh, it's the wrong partner, money's the obsession, the founders end up getting out of the business and that's the, the sort of the start of the slippery slope, or is that not fair? I mean, it, it, obviously, has, it obviously is fair because we've seen it happen. It just doesn't have to be that way. No. I think that an issue is where is the where is the where are the people who have a track record of integrity at scale? Because it's sort of new, isn't it? Yeah. It's sort of new to say, right, let's build something big, but we want it to be really, really good. What do you look at that is really big and still really, really good and think if we hire someone from there? That'll be great. We're, we're all kind of making it up as we go along, aren't we? 100%. I was talking to Brian Trollip, who is, uh, I, I don't know actually what his title is, but he's, you know, he's the, he's the senior guy below the owners at Dishun. Right. Such a great guy. And he was telling me that they have just sent him on a transition to general manager course with INSEAD, which is, big business thing, uh, two weeks in France, two weeks in Singapore, 
you know, and he's meeting a lot of people who are basically moving to being managing directors of businesses. I mean, and I looked at the cost of that. I thought, what an incredible commitment that was to, to creating someone who can do integrity at scale. I actually also felt a little bit guilty of like, oh shit, I haven't sent my, I haven't sent Tim on a th many, extremely expensive course in, in Singapore. So I didn't, I didn't tell him it existed. <laughs> but, he doesn't listen. But that's the challenge, right? Is how are we going to get the people who can run that? Because if you want to find someone who can do integrity, you tend to look smaller. If you want to find someone who can do scale, you tend to look bigger. But the two things together are to me anyway, what I think is really, really interesting. Mm. Yeah, and no, I think it's fascinating. I think it's, it's become more relevant, certainly from the sort of the social conscience of, you know, being a force for good and wanting to look after your team and not wanting to screw your team and make as much money as possible. That, yeah. that feels like a relatively new part of sort of, you know, capitalist history, I suppose. Yeah. Um, although I do remember reading, I forget his surname, Howard, is it from Starbucks? I remember Howard reading Schultz. his book, yeah. And again, wanting to hate him because I was kind of like, man, there's a Starbucks on every corner or, you know, across the globe. I hope he's an arsehole. And I read the book and I was like, wow, I really like him. And, and he, he kind of certainly kept the ethos of his love of, of coffee and customer service. Yeah. Not to say that they've nailed, you know, scale with integrity. I don't know. I don't know them well enough, but, but definitely his ethos, I thought, was, was, was very good. And it's, I mean, it's such, a, it's such a great thing. It's such a great thing to try and do that, to try and make those commitments to the kind of business you want to be. And I, mean, I know you've talked to Mitch before. You know, I, I got involved with his business, Rockfish, to because that was really what he wanted to do. And it, actually much, much more than Hawksmoor. Um, you, you just see with a business like that, you can make an entire town better. So, I mean, you know, he's opened restaurants in Exmouth, Weymouth, Swanage. Torquay. Oh, yeah. We don't have one in Swanage, but uh, I'm sure he would very no, much Weymouth, like So one. you're right, Weymouth, uh, I don't remember because I interviewed um, him. <laughs> And, you know, you're talking about a town of 20,000 people and you put this such a lovely restaurant in and you make a difference to some people who work there. And it's just, it's such a great business to have a commitment. Like, I just want to make a difference to people's lives. I mean, we're only giving them food and wine, right? But, but it does, it does do that. And I, I really love that aspect of aspiration. And I, I think it could exist more in our industry. Mm, yeah, and it, it, I loved chatting to Mitch uh, about that. And it was, it was re refreshing and reassuring, I suppose, to see somebody with his kind of uh, history and reputation and ability to say, you know, 20, 25 units, something like that, that's probably the sweet spot where he feels at the moment, certainly, that he can maintain that kind of uh, integrity and that maybe if you go super big, it might change. But it was just nice to hear that whatever, whatever the size was, it was irrelevant. The ethos and the ethics and his love for yeah, making a difference to the people that work for him in the town came across as utterly genuine, which yeah. was refreshing to hear. Uh, yeah, what made you get involved with Rockfish? Were you not busy enough? Or? My wife would say it's because I've got a man crush on Mitch. <laughs> uh, I might join you. Um, I, I mean, we, we, we know Mitch anyway. I remember... I remember going into um, going into the Seahorse years ago, and thinking oh, this is it's almost like a kind of seafoody version of Hawksmoor. Uh, you know, simple, really carefully sourced, uh, everything cooked simply on a lot of it on charcoal. Um, it was a bit at the time, you know, a bit of a kind of like 
schleppy-ish kind of room and quite kind of casual people and the music was was fun and I remember it reminded me of Spitalfields and we sort of got in touch a bit through my mum I think and, and, and <clears throat> excuse me because Mitch had a restaurant in Bristol which is where she lives and uh, yeah we, we got him involved in Hawksmoor first we wanted to do we wanted Air Street to be a steak and seafood restaurant when we launched that and we said, well, okay, if we're going to do a seafood restaurant, an element of seafood, the aspiration has to be it's got to be the best seafood restaurant in London. And if it's going to be that, we've got to have the best fish supply chain in London. And I think that's Mitch. So we built this kind of really bespoke, cut out all the middlemen supply chain. We really we just buy off boats in Brixham Market and it will get sent straight up. Um, and I've just he's just become a friend over the years. Um, and we've, uh, we've, you know, he's worked with us. And then I, I got involved in, in his company. He said to me, I oh, just, you know, I do, you don't know anyone, do you, who could chair, chair a business? I said, I, I, mean, I don't, and I, I've never done it before, but I, I'd really like to. Um, yeah, just kind of, it just sort of went from there. Amazing, does it take much time? No, I mean, we speak weekly. Uh, probably have sort of six board meetings a year and a, and a, and a board call. I mean, I, I probably go down there a little bit more than I strictly need to, just because it's fun. It's just such a fun world and his company's inspiring and his company's good. Uh, he likes eating and drinking. We, have, we had this, um, in 2018, I was gonna say last year, but last year's now 2019, 2018, we decided, right, we, we need to have, we need to have a Christmas lunch together, just the two of us. And we went to, um, Neil Borthwick was, is the chef at the French house, went to the French, and he's a friend, so went there. And we were like, we'll, we'll just bring a bottle of wine each. So we, we brought a bottle of wine, we texted each other, here's, here's the wine that I'm bringing. We both felt bad that the wine that we had texted didn't live up to the wine that the other person had texted. So we both went off and bought another bottle of wine. So we came with four <laughs> bottles of wine. Anyway, I just, I remember coming home from that Christmas lunch and my next door neighbor met me and we had a five minute conversation. I don't think he's ever, I've ever seen my next door neighbor again without him saying, I just didn't realize that lunches like that existed where you might be in that kind of state by the end of it. Um, and that is, that is what a Mitch lunch looks like. How does Mitch, uh, whilst we're on this subject, how does he make locations like Weymouth and Exmouth and these small towns work? Yeah, Hawksmoor, you've you know, publicly said, big cities, Manchester, Edinburgh, New York, London. Why, yeah, why the difference? Why does one only work in, in one place and the other stay small? I mean, uh, it, in some ways, it's... It, it's a question that I don't really know the answer to, other than I think I've learned from my career that uh, sticking to what you're good at and what you understand is really, really solid advice. And Mitch really understands coastal communities and seafood restaurants. Um, and he's spent most of his restaurant career, he's had more than one career, but his restaurant career doing that sort of thing. and. I live in big cities and I understand big restaurants. I've, I've never opened a restaurant successfully that has been less than 120 covers or something. I just seem to be incapable of uh, doing smaller restaurants just for future people just <laughs> listening to this podcast. I'm sure I'm capable of it. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but 
I don't know. And then there was some obvious stuff, I guess, you know, Hawksmoor, there's that heritage building thing. I think it needs to be a certain size. It's not inexpensive. And Hawksmoor restaurants, I think, should be busy to be proper Hawksmoor restaurants. They need to be high-ish, spend-per-head, buzzy, big destination restaurants. And the truth is, there aren't many cities that can handle one. I remember... Um, we opened Hawksmoor Manchester in 2015 and Jay Rayner went up to do one of his talks. You know, he kind of does, does a variety of talks and stuff in, um, in Manchester. He, he emailed me or called me or something and he said, I just, I've got, I've got a slight, I've got a, I think there's going to be a question from the audience. I don't know how to deal with it. And the question is, when you opened Air Street in 2013, I said with some confidence that the only city in the country that could handle a restaurant like Hawksmoor Air Street is London. And anyone who thinks otherwise is kidding themselves. And here you are, you've just opened in Manchester. I'm gonna get a question that is, mm, you missed it, didn't you? you missed yeah. it, Manchester can handle it, we're big enough. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I, it's not, not wildly interesting how, how, how I helped him deal with that question, but... Uh, Nonetheless, the point broadly is true. There aren't a lot of cities. We're in London, we're in Manchester, we're in Edinburgh. I mean, you tell me what could handle 7,000 square foot, 65 quid a head, and I want to be busy, let's say of the 14 services a week, I want to be busy, busy, at least 10 of them. And I need to employ 100 staff who are really good and really Hawksmoor-y at the same time. What's the next city for me? Is that an actual question? No, I mean, Shit, to be honest, I have asked, I've asked <laughs> oh, okay, good. I'm glad you thought about it before me. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think about it, but um, it's not, in a way, it's not a difficult question because the answer is there aren't many. No. You know, Bournemouth is a city. Yeah, yeah. Could Bournemouth handle a 7,000 square foot Hawksmoor? Yeah, and disappointingly, because it'd be lovely if you open one down there, mm. but uh, someone no, just, yeah, we, yeah. Because yeah, we get too many uh, chain places. You're nice, Could, actually. You're nice to say that because my mum, who lives in, who I've said lives in Bristol, has said to me, even though I've never said I, I think we could open a restaurant in Bristol for the reasons I've just given, she says to me, I, I really, I don't think people would like Hawksmoor in Bristol. Wow. Mum? <laughs> Only your mum could get away with that. Only your mum could get away with that. She's like, you know, because bigger business, Bristol really independent, you know, they really like the kind of small integrity thing. Yeah, but I think you you've maintained that, and and again you've said you you know I don't know whether that's changed, but you know getting that private in, investment which was twenty thirteen I think wasn't it you know a significant chunk of cash you presumably could expand faster than you are, but you've always wanted to expand slowly uh, by finding the right places, and you don't seem to have a desire to have not only that necessarily a Hawksmoor wouldn't work in every town across the country, but I, I, I've never read anything where you sort of said, oh, I'd love to have 200 restaurants. It oh, always feels just, like you want to have the right number, but it's probably not loads. I was just on WhatsApp yesterday, actually, just uh, complaining about a press release that says like, oh, we want 200 restaurants. What the fuck are you talking about? Anyway, but it's funny, we, you know, once you have once you have a bigger company and you know you have investors and you have a board and we've got non-executive directors who are fantastic people, but decisions are made in a, in a professional way, you know, with kind of analysis and roundtable discussions amongst very intelligent people and da, 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 all of that. 
And that, of course that happens in Hawksmoor, but there, there is another version of a decision that gets made in Hawksmoor, which is me and Hugh having like a bowl of clam pasta in this restaurant in Peckham that we both, we both locals at. Uh, and we'll say something like, is there an amount of money that you could make that would make up for Hawksmoor got a bit shit? To which both of our answers, I just, I just don't care. I just don't care. I don't, I don't want to look back and think we ruined it. I don't even want to look back and think someone else ruined it after we stopped. I, I just don't care. And there's no, yeah, but we did 200 restaurants or we made this much. There's just no amount that makes that worthwhile for us. Um, which is not analytical and it's not, you know, it's not how business decisions are supposed to be made but sometimes it, it is how they are. And we made a similar one with New York actually, because I mean, again, you're, I'm sure you all have had this thought or someone listening will have had this thought of, what are they doing? What, why, why would an English state restaurant for their first international restaurant go to New York, the home of the state restaurant, where the failure rate is significantly higher, where restaurants are unbelievably expensive to build, why would that be the next thing you do? What a ridiculous decision. And believe me that other people in the business have had that conversation with us. And I remember really saying to Hugh at some point, I'll just ask you a question. I, I kind of feel like if we do it and fail, I don't mind because we'll have tried. And if we don't do it, I will spend most of the rest of my career wondering whether we should have done do you feel like that? And he's like, yeah, 100%. I don't mind if it fails. I just, I just want to try. I was like, in that case, is there anything else to talk about really? Let's just, let's just do it. Mm -hmm. I, I, hope that, I, I, I hope the rest of the board aren't listening to that, but that, <laughs> that definitely is like, you know, the background yeah. of making a decision. And that is nice, isn't it? It's nice to be able to make that kind of, have that kind of conversation with your best mate about how, yeah. you, how you, run your lives yeah. and your business. And it's probably the reason for being an entrepreneur and having your own business. And, and I think for me, you know, being an entrepreneur is, is, is that opportunity to create things that are only in your head. And I think what an utter privilege it is, you know, when you're a kid and you make things out of Lego and stuff like that, and it's pretty cool that there it is a physical thing you can touch and poke. And I love the fact that I'll see a building and, and in my head, I'll see, you know, festoon lighting and hear the music and the clinking of glasses and, you know, family sat around laughing and joking and sharing a Sunday roast. And, and what an amazing thing it is to take something that's only in your head and then create it. And it's three-dimensional. And then people come and they give you feedback. So, no, I get it. I think the opportunity yeah. to go and do something uh, in New York must be pretty awesome, really. And to do it, yeah, because you want to do it. And it's not about the numbers and the money, obviously. You know, it's got to financially work to justify being a business, but that shouldn't be the primary reason for doing it. Shouldn't it? I don't think. I don't think it should be money. I think it should be curiosity, insatiable yeah. curiosity. And I should, I should say, by the way, I really hope it financially works. Yeah, better do uh, that. But um, <laughs> yeah, are you taking are you taking British Hawksmoor to New York, or are you adapting it for New York? Yeah, I mean, we are and we aren't. I when I think about. Hawksmoor in this country, it feels right to me for all sorts of reasons that it should try and be a really great British state restaurant. Uh, and 
you know, if I think about we've got restaurants in London, Manchester and Edinburgh, I think it's, it's right that we should try and be a really great London restaurant, a really great Manchester restaurant, a really great Edinburgh restaurant. And that that has implications to, to whatever it is, supply chain or the staff or a certain ethos or whatever it is. And that is fundamentally what Hawksmoor is. So in New York, I've got zero interest in trying to be the British steak restaurant in New York. To me, that Hawksmoor is only British because it's in Britain. Uh, Hawksmoor in New York should just be an exceptional New York steak restaurant. The supply chain should be the absolute best of American beef and seafood and vegetables. The staff should be predominantly American. Uh, we have, it's, it's on us, the onus is on us to work out what is it that Americans want that Brits don't, uh, that Brits think is not good, but Americans like. Give them that because that's, that's fundamentally, we're just trying to make American people happy and build an American steak restaurant. I've, I've just got no interest whatsoever in, it's the British one. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't is, know. Is, is it very different though? Because you've been planning this for, what, is it six years now since, you know, the six, idea? Six years, <laughs> yeah. Sorry to bring that up. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> from it's from fine. idea to now, but yeah, you've had time, I presume, to understand yeah, I mean, the it nuances. Is, it is different and, you know, I, I can probably kid myself that I've understood some of the nuances already but really, until you've, I mean, we, we employ at the moment, and we bear in mind we're probably a couple of months away from opening, think I employ four Americans so far. So I haven't really got into, okay, what, what do Americans want as a, from an employer to make them happy and, and, and get the best out of them? I certainly haven't really got into what does the American public want, but it is different, you know, you, it's different opening business. We talk to the PR company. It's, you know what what the press want is different. They want you to speak differently. There's a different marketing way of doing things. And I, I try and say to people often, well, that doesn't come up that much. But when people are like, oh no, that's not how we do things. I'm like, is this the hill we want to die on? You know, is it is how we do a soft launch, for example? Is that in, is that essential to what Hawksmoor is? Of course not. We'll just do it in whatever the way is that makes people happy locally. You know, it is what, I don't know, this is, this is wrong, but if we do celeriac and they hate celeriac in the States, who cares? You know, what Hawksmoor is, should just be, it's a really great steak restaurant, real integrity in the supply chain, really nice to people, and that whole kind of casual professional thing. Anything else is just like local noise, isn't it? We should just... If, if they would rather we should change it, let's just change it, Yeah, I think. You excited? What are you, eight weeks away? Depending on when you ask me, I'm either really excited or absolutely petrified. Probably more the latter at the moment. Yeah. That's the buzz though, I suppose, isn't it? Because this, this is not a small uh, restaurant either, is it? This is another big one. Can you just t- t- talk about the, uh, the building you found? Because you're not in the World Trade Center anymore. Are you found somewhere? Yes, yeah, cool. incredible. So we're in, we're, in, we're in a building called the United Charities Building. Although I'm smiling, which you may not be able to see on this podcast, but I'm smiling just because someone said to me, just think about local variances, like, well, no one fucking cares what the building's called. No one cares. They just want to know what the cross street is. I'm like, oh. 
like, yes, I want to know what the building's <laughs> called. Anyway, United Charities Building, and it was this building that this 19th century philanthropist kind of built almost as like a gift to the city. So it housed a series of um, charities, the Vigilance League, the Fresh Air Society, the whatever, the Manhattan Chess Club was there, weirdly. Uh, and it's got this really rich history on charity. And in the building, uh, this guy, Kennedy, um, built an assembly hall. And the idea of the building was that charity's work and endeavor would be improved through contact with others. And this assembly hall was where that contact was supposed to happen. They'd hold public talks there and they'd have you know, mixed meetings there and they'd exchange ideas and stuff. Uh, and the restaurant is in the assembly hall. And it's been so great because we've, we've, we've taken around uh, industry people who've lived in that area for a long time, like um, Mike Anthony, who's the, who's the chef owner of uh, Gramercy Tavern, just the nicest person. Uh, and he's, he's been literally just round the corner for 20 years and he's never seen the building. Never seen inside the building. Um, so again, it's just, we're just sort of bringing back this amazing space to kind of the public realm. Um, so anyway, we're in this big building. It's a 170-cover restaurant, 50 in the bar. It was <coughs> wildly expensive to build. Uh, was it a shell? Was it, had it not been used for a while? Or? Yeah, it was a shell. It was a shell. It had been bought by... Um, the building had been bought by, I think it's like some Chinese investors or something as their first kind of freehold... Uh, property in the in the states or in or in New York, and just as we arrived, they were they were sort of taking out original features of the building to be replaced with nice modern things. And we're like, oh oh my god, please, please stop. stop touching things! <laughs> Don't touch anything. We'll take it all. We've even like gone to kind of you know sort of secondhand places, refuse places to try and find bits that we were too late to get. Wow. And can we get them back in? We and we failed, um, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an endeavour. Yeah, exciting. Your ability to take old buildings and refit them in a way that uh, makes them feel like they've looked like that for the last hundred years, and they're not. Uh, they don't feel like you know, too often in the US, particularly. I think restaurants tend to start to feel a little bit Disney because they've been created. But how do you seem to be able to pull that off with such a sort of authenticity? I suppose um, it does. It, does that come? A long time in advance. Do you plan on paper? Uh, what the feel and the vibe and do that? You know, how do you do that? Because it's impressive. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the stage of the podcast that would be comparable to you saying to Hugh, "How does the Hawksmoor culture? How do you go around building a Hawksmoor culture that feels coherent?" And he'd be like, "Oh, yeah, I don't know." So, I mean, you know, we, we have an amazing creative team, uh, Hugh and uh, May, who's who's been a a friend of ours since we were 11 as well, funnily enough. Uh, and, you know, we use this, this firm called Macaulay Sinclair. So we, we've just got a really good team of people. There's a really clear kind of overall vision for what Hawksmoor restaurants should look like. And then when it gets down to the individual restaurant, yeah, we have quite a, quite a good mm. run at building those things. But um, I don't know. I mean, they just, they just, I think they're just a great group of people with a real sensitivity to... Uh, trying to put something together that feels authentic. My, one of my favourite ever compliments for Hawksmoor 
was in 2011, we, we opened Hawksmoor Guildhall, it's our third restaurant it's in the city of London, right next to the Guildhall. Um, and it's in a grade two listed building, beautiful building. And a customer who had been to our Seven Dials restaurant came in the opening week and said, I'm not, I'm not a bit disappointed. I had a really nice meal, but I'm a bit disappointed that you didn't really do much with the interior. Like, you know, you've obviously bought some kind of tables and chairs, but you've sort of left it as it is. And I thought you would be a bit more creative than that. And we showed her at the time, the building on Google street map, where there was nothing apart from the facade just held up. The entire shell had been gutted. When we took it over, it was breeze block concrete, looked like a car park. Amazing. And we created something that made someone feel disappointed that it was just such a, well, I mean, it's just, why have you kept it Edwardian? <laughs> Come on, get with the times, guys. Brilliant. I'm glad you found that really positive and a compliment and not like, oh my God, we spent all of that money. And uh, yeah, people think it was always there. Is it John McCauley that you deal with, McCauley Sinclair? Actually, we use Mike Sinclair. Do you? Okay. John um, McCauley was the designer of my restaurant. He's a good is that guy, right? Yeah, he yeah, does yeah. a lot of the Dishoom stuff as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, cool. Um, yeah, good, good guy. Two of ours. One that's worked and still working and one that failed, but I don't blame him, although I might if he's listening. Yeah, uh, I think absolutely. I mean, I think we should definitely blame think, other people. I think so. Take yeah, all the credit for the things that works yeah, yeah, yeah. and none yeah. of, yeah. None of the responsibility for things that don't. It was definitely the totally John. That was the problem. Um, <laughs> Conscious of time, and I, I wanted to speak to you uh, quickly about um, just the whole kind of provenance thing. You started the conversation when I asked you what um, Hawksmoor was about around just find really good kind of product and really good yeah. steak. Um, one of the things that I think is a challenge and, and how you do this at scale, but to, to work with small local guys who really care about the kind of the meat and the animal and the welfare, and I know you're into that, um, becomes complicated when people want a ribeye or a fillet and the whole kind of carcass. How do we use the whole carcass? How can you find somebody who can supply with that integrity but supply the cuts that you want? How do you get that right? What is your supply chain? Are you, are you still really close to the supplier? Is that your bit? Yeah, uh, such a good question. And it's funny, just as a, as a, quick, a quick tangent, we're going to New York, right? If you're, if you're English and someone asks you the question, what makes you good? The idea, I think, of answering it is extremely uncomfortable, right? You don't, no one wants to talk about what makes them good at stuff. You, you naturally sort of say, oh, <laughs> terrible, really, or someone else, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and in New York, you have to answer, it's a perfectly reasonable question. Why the fuck should New York be interested in your steak restaurant? What makes it different? So firstly, that's difficult. And the second thing that's difficult is, I, in a way, I think the answer is underwhelming. Um, like I kind of started this with, I think people will assume that all steak restaurants, because that's what you do, all steak restaurants must be interested in the farm. Where is it? How are the cows reared? Who is the farmer? Is there a better way of doing things? Can we influence that in any way? Moving through to like, okay, what's the slaughter? Whatever, all of it, the feed, everything. And the answer is almost none of them are. And none at scale that I can think of. They're just, just a wholesaler just tells me this is the stuff. Or in the States, there's a lot of like, if I look at it, I can see the marbling, so that's good enough. 
and it's almost weird. We've spent so much time on that bit that no one else seems to think is a bit, but just strikes me as such a screamingly obvious thing that you have to do if you're a steak restaurant. And we're, we're very lucky in the UK that we've started from, in 2006, like an order of 300 quid, and we've now built up, slowly, slowly, organically growing to fit almost 15 years later, uh, you know, it's, we're a big, account for people. I mean, we've called people in the past and said, I'm interested in talking about beef. Who are you? Hawksmoor. Like, I'm just going to stop you there. Because <laughs> uh, you're right, it's hugely difficult. The carcass stuff's hugely difficult. And, and the way that we do it at the moment is we work with a variety of farms that are from small independent to kind of integrity at scale. We have a spec and we have an agreed price. So, and I'm just pausing because I'm really conscious this is one of those things I could bore the crap out of you with for, for <laughs> a whole well, I would enjoy hours. It, but but right, broadly yeah, well, speaking, well, we have a spec and we say to people, if you can provide us with this, and this is how we feel about animal rearing in terms of you know, ethics and animal welfare and sustainability, but really importantly, end product flavor, uh, we will pay you this amount of money, which is above market rate. It's really important, by the way, for a farmer, because the usual farming paradigm is, I'll rear the cow and then I hope I get paid for it at the end. So how are you going to rear the, how much money are you going to put into the cow in the first place? Mm. They know what the end price is, so they know what money they can put into the cow is. Um, and then we work with like an integrity at scale kind of processor who will do the slaughter and the butchery and the aging. Um, and that bit, I think, can't be small. That's what helps us with the spec and the sort of central processing stuff is what helps us with consistency. And the individual farmers is what helps us with quality. Does that make sense? It does, no, it makes absolute sense. Yeah, and that's, I suppose, the bit that is all too often missed you you have got to have you know just the regulation around the the, the slaughter and the uh, yeah i suppose the reputation of the slaughterhouse and all that kind of stuff and, and too many people get to that point even if you can bypass you know the uh, the wholesaler uh, and or the butcher and then the wholesaler and then you know get back to the slaughterhouse but to get to the next stage so you're dealing with the farmers who then feed into a slaughterhouse that you no, basically, so yeah, you can go right, direct yeah. to the farm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and off the back of that, I guess, and, and I found it fascinating because I've been interviewing, I was interviewing a commoner in the New Forest a couple of weeks ago who has like, you know, 35 miles of land, basically, where his animals can roam free. Really interesting guy called Tom Foote down in Devon, who's the open-air dairy where his 800 cows basically live out in the, in the fields and are milked in the field. And, you know, the nuances around farming and how little, I suppose, the public know about farming, but how I think there's this interest, this whole debate, I suppose, at the moment around uh, vegan impact of meat on the planet and all that kind of stuff, which is much more complicated than probably just eat meat, don't eat meat. You know, there's there's some benefits to, to farming on the land, how the, how the new forest yeah. is managed, all that kind of stuff. So it's nuanced and it's complicated. And I enjoy talking about it, but I recognise as a consumer, it must just sort of blow their minds sometimes. Um, have you noticed a change in demand for that? Like more so, I suppose, in the last two years? And is it a conversation you're joining in more? And what's your thoughts? Yeah, we, I mean, it's one that we really want to be part of. I, I have a view, and I'm not sure if it's right, actually, that the... The, the kind of push towards veganism or the increased interest in veganism is actually 
part of a broader societal trend, which is interest in environmental uh, issues, welfare issues, uh, and the quality of the food that we put in our body and its impact. And I think Hawksmoor feeds really well into that macro trend and admittedly quite badly, I think, into the vegan trend because obviously we're, we're, we're a meat restaurant. But, you know, we think a huge amount about sustainability, environment, animal welfare, and and the kind of the, the quality of the food that we that you put into your bodies. I think possibly in the past, we have felt like it's a conversation that we shouldn't really be part of that much, just because it's so easy to say, yeah, well, you would say that, wouldn't you, because you're a steak restaurant. Um, even though, you know, we've got, you know, we're three-star, maximum three-star rated sustainable restaurant association restaurant. We put so much effort into this. We have a full-time head of sustainability in the restaurant, uh, in, the, in the company. But I think we feel like now it's probably a conversation that we need to be part of a bit more because I think you're right. The, I think the concern around environment, animal welfare and, and health is legitimate and real and I share it. And I think the answer, vegan is better, is wrong or at the very least is nuance wrong. And... I feel like it's important that there's another way. And, it, and it, you're, you're absolutely right that it, it does fundamentally go back to good farming. And actually in this country, by and large, we have good farming. America, I think, has some of the best farming I've ever seen and some horrific stuff that would never be allowed in this country, or maybe not never, but at the moment is not allowed in this country. And I, I just, when I see the best of it, it's so incredible and inspiring. But this country's basic standards are really, really good, certainly around around cattle, which I which I know more about. Yeah, Polyface Farm. Have you heard of them in the US? Yeah, yeah, Joel yeah. Slatin. Yeah, that looks awesome, doesn't it? Just yeah. from a, what what can yeah. good look like? Um, but yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I do think we have a, a sort of an obligation, I guess, as a restaurant to be part of the solution. We've had big debates with my guys, and certainly changed in the last couple of years, and trying to get the chefs interested in in sort of more plant based food. But saying actually, we have the opportunity because it's probably no doubt about the fact you know don't eat loads of red meat every day. Uh, let's eat better but eat less uh, and that transition around saying can we hold people's hand can we put the burger you know in one part of the and instead of burying the kind of plant base and, and maybe it was a bit shit at one point but do a really good plant-based burger and put it next to the beef burger and hold people's hand to kind of go look you know try this one and actually it's really good and have the other one occasionally so i think it is, we're part of the solution not the problem I'd yeah like to totally think. and it's, it's it's funny it's so difficult people people me included a simple answer is so much easier cognitively yes. than a, than a, than a complex, complicated one. It's one of those things, uh, and there are a few of them that I often think like, if you could just listen to me talk for ten minutes, I can explain to you what I think. Yeah. But I can't give you a soundbite, and I have thought, you know, what is a soundbite? And it, it eat lets me is better. Actually, my favourite bit of dietary advice ever is Michael Pollan, mm, and words. his dietary advice is, uh, what is it? Um, Eat food. Eat food, mostly plants. Yeah. Eat food, not too much, yeah, mostly, mostly plants. plants. Great, isn't it? Is yeah. absolutely great. Yeah. But I, I totally think that that includes the, the assumption that some of what you should eat should be meat. You should just be careful, be considerate mm. about what it is that you eat. And if that is difficult, well, eating less is a good start. 
Yeah. But I mean, Hawksmore is somewhere where really I think people should feel super comfortable that they are eating meat mindfully. Yeah. Yeah, I eat very little meat and I'll only eat it if I know about the ethos and the ethics of the company behind it. So I yeah. think if I came to Hawksmoor, I'd happily eat meat, but 90% of the time I won't. And, and that's a relatively recent thing and probably the downside of learning too much. But you're right, it's complicated. I could speak to you about an hour on it, but we're nearly out of time. Um, just looking back then over the last uh, <coughs> 10 years, however long it's been, slightly more, 13, 14, what's, what's the biggest kind of challenge you feel you've overcome is one question. And then what are you most excited about for the future? Well, those are big questions yeah, to, sorry just, to, to just on throw out at the end. How <laughs> yeah. exciting. I can't end on me. Um, I guess kind of like biggest, maybe the biggest challenge uh, that we've overcome to date is, is that thing that we've kind of talked about of you, you can, you can kind of follow your own path to scale. You, you don't have to go down prescribed routes. Although, by the way, there is a lot of wisdom in those prescribed, prescribed paths, so you're daft to throw it all out. But growing and kind of really being true to who you are and the company you want to, to, to be, it, it's a real source of pleasure to me to just think about Hawksmoor. Like, I'm, I'm proud of it. I really, really like it. Uh, I think that's great after 14 years. And in terms of challenges, to well, challenges to come, you didn't ask me, but I, I often think, I often say to Hugh, I, I feel nervous that the time will come when, for me, for example, the answer to who's the best person to run this company is definitively not me. Uh, and that puts quite a lot of onus on me because that's what I want to be doing. Um, so I, I worry about that a little bit, um, personally. And I don't know, I mean, I mean, I mean I can't really think past being excited about this massive restaurant we're going to open in uh, in in two months. It maybe it's kind of like a, as a, as a closing thought on it. There's this, there's a friend of mine that I've made in the states called Keith, <clears throat> and we do some work. We do some work with him a little bit in the states, and he he said to me, "You must be must be really excited, Will, about New York, right? It's the biggest thing you've ever done." And I'm like, I said, oh, yeah. Of course, of course I know what you mean, but I have done some stuff already. Like we've got six restaurants in London, big restaurants in London, which is not like an insignificant small town, Keith. And you know, we've got eight restaurants and they're big and this is not by any means the biggest, the one that we've got. And he looked at me and deadly seriously, he says, Will, nobody cares about anything that you've ever done outside New York. And I remember laughing because it was the most New Yorky comment I've ever heard. <laughs> but also, there's some truth in that for New York. You know, it, it is it is a really big thing. I mean, I've, I've, I've kind of said to Hugh and other people, what part of the part of the pleasure of doing it is if you know, if you if you ask my son, any of my, I've got three sons. If you said to them, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they're like, oh, you know, play for Liverpool and score the winning goal in the Champions League final or something. I think if you're a restaurateur, there's something about like, we're gonna open it, if we could open a successful restaurant in New York, that is that is the goal in the final, isn't it? If you're a restaurant person, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the possibility that we might do that, but also the possibility that we might not is also kind of very, very real and right in front of me now. 
Yeah. I'm excited just hearing you talk about it. What, what a great buzz uh, that is. And also terrifying. Uh, last thing, if it goes well, would you do more in America, do you think? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I've... Because <laughs> we're going to do the World Trade Center and we announced the World Trade Center... And someone asked me, is this, the, this was in like 2016 or something, is this the start of something, you know, something bigger? You want to do more in the States? And I was like, today we announced that we were going to open our first restaurant, the biggest restaurant we've ever opened, the first one outside this country, in the flag, and it'd be the flagship restaurant of one of the most famous buildings in one of the most famous cities in the world. And your first question is, could we make this plan a little bit more ambitious? I'm just not there with you. That's already so overwhelmingly ambitious that I can't really think beyond it. Yeah, good. And I'm a bit closer now. And I mean, I don't know, you know, if, if things don't go well, they suck so much of your time. Yeah. And if they do, sometimes you get that feeling that you can kind of do anything. And, and, and that's got to be, that's almost the best feeling, isn't it? In, mm -hmm. in business of just like feeling, feeling that, Potential, feeling potential and momentum and I guess if we feel that then we will try and do something else yeah good well, it's a shit question because we should just really uh, <coughs> be more present and appreciate yeah, what's especially going after on your, especially after your scale is bad comment <laughs> half an hour ago yeah. um, but I can't help but ask it look uh, I could talk to you and hopefully we'll get to chat again because I think I asked about 10 of the 40 questions I had because we went off on so many tangents so one day three um, more podcasts yeah yeah three more yeah. to go yeah or when you're coming down and next having a chat with Mitch maybe we'll do a joint one I'll bring Great. wine and we'll meet by the coast if there's wine I'm in but uh, thank you so much for sparing the time good luck with New York I'm, I'm, I'm going to work yeah, watch with an even keener interest. Uh, thanks for being a good guy in the industry. Congrats on what you've done. Thank thanks you very for much. spending the time. And thank you for asking it. me to be on it. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday <laughs>